read another familiar parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this parable is one of those, uh, as often happens in Jesus' teachings, where things don't really go according to the way that you might expect, especially from the perspective of the original audience. It seems like we would have assumed that it would have been either the priest or the Levite, or maybe both, that is the um, religious leaders in Israel, that one of them would have been the one who would stop and help this man who had been robbed and beaten. But there's a twist, and it turns out that that's actually not the case. Rather, it is the Samaritan. It's the um, half-breed, the sworn enemy of the Jewish people. In the eyes of the uh, Jews, the Samaritans were the descendants of the Assyrians, if you recall from the Old Testament, the Assyrians were the ones to first conquer Israel before the Babylonians did. So we're talking here some of the worst of Israel's historical enemies. And significantly, among the most unclean of racial groups. So racial tensions in this parable are very high. And in many ways, that's a lot of what this is about. But in the end, again, it's not the religious leaders of Israel, but rather it's this Samaritan who keeps the law of Israel. He's the one who looks upon this Jewish man with compassion, tends to his wounds. He sacrifices two days worth of his wages, all to make sure that he's okay. And while this is a familiar parable for us, we've heard it a lot, we often don't talk about the occasion for Jesus telling it, it's like, what's the context here? So Luke tells us that there's a lawyer. He's referred to as a doctor of the law. In essence, he would have been the equivalent of a modern-day biblical scholar. And so this biblical scholar comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, Well, what's written in the law? How do you read what's in there? And so he answers and says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So I think it's important to stop here and to note that this answer that this doctor of the law gives is the right answer. And Jesus affirms that he answered correctly. He says, you've answered rightly, do this and you will live. So this answer that he gives consists of two um, Old Testament citations. So the first is from Deuteronomy 6, and the other is Leviticus 19. So the first is the famous Shema, which we probably know. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And then the second one comes from Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And it's at this point that Luke tells us that this doctor of the law does something interesting. So he says in verse 29 that he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? So this is the debate here. This is what's going on. Leviticus 19 says, you shall not bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the question is, do I need to only love as myself the son of my own people? That's the question. That's the debate. So it's in this, question, or this context then that Jesus tells this parable. This parable is how he goes about answering this debate. And right away we see that there's a certain disjointedness between the question 
and Jesus' response. And I would say that in a way, it's not really an answer to the question. And this is intentional because what Jesus does with this parable, or what this parable does right from the beginning, is it negates the question itself. And the negation of the question is the answer. Because the parable says, in effect, that true love, the kind that is required to inherit eternal life, can't even ask that question. It can't ask the question about who I'm required to love or not. This parable is not a general platitude on helping those in need, though we should do that, and it obviously speaks to that. But I think its punch is more nuanced. This parable is a challenge for us to think about those from whom we currently withhold love. And Jesus teaches us here that true love does not limit itself. True love does not set a boundary on its neighbor. There is no one from whom you are permitted to withhold love. Now, admittedly, that starts to sound a bit churchy, like, oh yeah, we just need to love everybody. And unfortunately, the way that we often talk about love causes a necessary qualification like that. But the reality, though, is that this parable does challenge us to think more deeply about love, to think more deeply about what we might call the love command of Jesus. And there's like a few steps with it. There's like a succession. So the first is you love the people who love you. And that's a good first step. It's the easiest of the steps. But Jesus says even the tax collectors and sinners do that. So you have to go further. So that's the first level. You love the people who love you. Great. The next level is, will you love someone that you don't know, so you don't have a relationship with them, but they present themselves to you in need? That's the next level. Will you love that person? And then the next level is, will you love the person who makes you feel uncomfortable, for whatever reason that might be? Here, the discomfort is racially driven and religiously driven. So will you love that person who makes you feel uncomfortable presently? And then even more, the final level and even more difficult, is, and it's what ultimately is Jesus' answer here, it's will you love the person who is your enemy? Will you love your enemy in the same way that you love yourself? That is, will you see your enemy as your neighbor and thus treat him accordingly? So this parable, again, challenges us to think about who we love. How do you define your neighbor? Where do you put your limits? And it seems to me, thinking upon this, that we often do this along um, social lines, political lines, maybe racial lines, religious lines. And what we do is we create categories. So we say, I'm in a certain category, but then this other person over here, for whatever reason it might be, you have to do spend the time thinking about that. The person over here is in a different category. So I'm able to create distance from myself, from that person. And I'm able to say then that because this person does this or thinks this or believes this, then that means that they are that in that different category. And here's the thing about the people in that category. I don't really have any obligation to them. I don't have to worry about them because they do that. It's no, no skin off my nose. And in essence, we say that because we've put this person in that category of person or put this person into that category of people, 
we justify to ourselves withholding love for whatever reason it might be. But Jesus is challenging this. So let's even, for the sake of argument, grant that perhaps you are in the right and the other person is in the wrong, which often is not the case, but we'll grant it. There is at least, or at very least, something true about your evaluation of the situation, your evaluation of the other. And the challenge here from Jesus is, okay, even if we grant that you are right and the other person is wrong about whatever the particular issue is, Jesus says that even more so in that case, you should respond to that individual with love. In other words, even if you are right and the other person is all the bad that you think they are, they're all the bad that you make them out to be, and even if you're right about that, well, then what does that make them? Well, that makes them your enemy. And how are we to respond to our enemy? Well, Jesus says we respond to them with love. Jesus teaches us that even though we might feel righteous anger or righteous indignation, and even if we are right, it doesn't matter. It never justifies withholding love. So your sense of righteous anger does not give you permission to withhold mercy or compassion. Rather, as demonstrated by the Samaritan, our response must always be seeing their need and then actually sacrificing something for their good. At the risk now of now being redundant, this is what I would say that I would want or what I would think the purpose would be in a sermon such as this. That you really take a minute to think about who your current enemies are and how you are responding to your current enemies. And the thing is, when you stop and think about it, your current enemy may or may not be the person who you might think. So it could be your political enemy. It could be the Christian who is more liberal than you, or it could be the Christian who is more conservative than you. It could be your boss. It could be a little bit closer, though. It could be a friend who's wronged you. It could be a family member who's wronged you. Your enemy could even be your spouse. And the Good Samaritan reminds us that doing wrong to our enemies, even if we are in the right, is not justified. That love must extend even to those who we presently hate. And this love is not about sentiment, but rather it's about seeing the other, seeing their need, being able to recognize that, and being willing to set aside differences and to sacrifice for their good. This, according to our Lord, is what is required to live. This is what's required to inherit eternal life. This is ultimately the answer to the original question, as we read here at the end. The one who will inherit eternal life is the one who shows mercy. So go now, therefore, and do likewise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.